Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, page 1696 of the Bibles in the benches. This is God's Word. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, as was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Well, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God 
boldly. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that guy that we spoke of last week was one of the more pitiful, miserable members of the fallen human race that ever lived in this world. He was crippled from birth and he was well past the point of ever expecting that he could recover on his own. The text today reminds us that he was over 40. His physical pain was made worse by his emotional pain, by his humiliation of having to be picked up and dragged to go anywhere. And not only that, but every day of his life he had to beg, beg people for just enough money to eat and to pay rent. And Jesus, working through His apostles, Peter and John, Jesus met this man at the temple and healed him. Immediately the man got up, his pain was gone, his legs were working, his dignity was restored, and he was walking and leaping and praising God. And Peter then preaches to the people that Christ has come not only to that miserable, pitiful man, but He's come to all of the sinful, fallen human race. And He has come to save sinners from their sins and miseries. He will save, Peter says, all those who acknowledge their sinful, miserable condition. And that's all very, very obviously good news. This is a wonderful thing that happened. A cripple was healed. An announcement was made by Peter at the command of Christ that that kind of healing represented not only the great glorification which is coming, but also the relief of our shame and guilt from our sins. This is all fantastic news. But, the temple police got upset. That's who some of these people are that are mentioned in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard are the temple police. They got upset that this man was healed and that somebody announced that the miseries of the fallen human race, the sinfulness and guilt and shame of the fallen human race, actually had an answer. They got upset at that, if you can imagine. Now, they're temple police, and it's important to understand that there were police in the temple. It was necessary for police to be in the temple because there was so much money running through that place. I mean, just think about it. The priests themselves were running what we want to call a sacrificial racket. Because Jewish people knew when they came to the temple, they couldn't come empty-handed. They would have to bring sacrifices and offerings. And of course, they knew from the Old Testament law that only certain kinds of animals were allowed to be accepted as sacrificial offerings. And not only that, but those particular animals had to have a certain quality about them, right? They couldn't be blemished. They had to be pure. Now, the priests were the ones in the temple who would determine when these worshipers came to the temple whether or not the animals that they brought were acceptable for sacrifice if they met all the qualifications. And so it didn't take the priests long to figure out that if they were the ones selling the sacrificial animals outside of the temple or in the courts of the temple as people were coming to bring them in, then maybe those are the only ones that would get approved and meet the standard. So this was a racket. There was a lot of money flowing through that place. The priests could charge exorbitant prices for the animals that they said would be approved 
for temple worship and sacrificial offerings. And not only that was going on, the commerce in the temple, but the temple is where the movers and the shakers of Israel's political system held their backroom discussions about how much to buy, how much to spend to buy off the Roman governmental authorities or how much to spend to skim off the top of the tax collectors who had betrayed their own people and the nation of Israel and were exacting them with harsh taxes. You see, this is where a lot of the economic shenanigans of Old Testament Israel were going on in the temple. It was, in no uncertain terms, as Jesus called it earlier, a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And not only that, it was like a mafia too. Look at verse 6. You see here, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. You see, the very powerful transfer and laundering of money that was going on in the temple, the oppression of the people who had come to sacrifice uh, to the Lord, all of this was in the hands of a few people who were related. If you study anything about the people who were going through the office of high priest, you'll find that it's the father and then the son and then the son-in-law and then the brother-in-law and then back to the father again, each taking a turn. This is exactly what's going on here. There is a lot of money and a lot of power at stake in the temple and that is why it had to be guarded by police. And it wasn't just the temple police that got upset at this healing and at this preaching. Some of the pastors, is what we call them today, some of the theologians, in the temple got upset also. These are the Sadducees mentioned in verse 1. These are the theological liberals of the day. They're the ones that have no problem saying that they are Jewish believers. They have no problem practicing all of the outward religion of the Jewish people showing up to the temple, but they don't accept a lot of the basic claims that are fundamental to Judaism and to the Jewish religion. For example, and that one's mentioned explicitly for us in this text, is that they denied the resurrection. So when they see somebody preaching that there is a resurrection from the dead, they are offended by that. The theologians don't like that this false teaching is coming into the temple, what they understand to be false teaching. Now, of course, they have very strong divisions with the other theologians that are running around in the temple, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees accept the concept of the resurrection. They disagree with the Pharisees about that. They disagree with the Pharisees about the way in which they are so exacting to the application and the interpretation of the Old Testament law. But these theologians are upset. It's causing a stir. The people, you see, mentioned in verse 1, the temple police and the Sadducees, they may have different reasons why they are offended by the teaching that's coming into the temple. But they certainly agree on one thing, which is what? Verse 2, that they're greatly disturbed that the apostles are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and it's got to be stopped. That they agree on. You see, people of all different stripes and all different opinions, be it religious or they have other motivations, when they perceive a common threat, they will unite together. Even if they're fighting each other all the time on other issues, they unite together to rise up against a common threat. That's what's happening here. The question is really, why would a healing of a cripple and why would the proclamation of God's grace in Christ be such a threat to them? I mean, so what if it's a minor correction or even a major correction of the theology that you've held uh, to this point in your life, pastors and theologians? 
I mean, doesn't the good news, the obvious good news of somebody being healed miraculously and then somebody pronouncing the forgiveness of sins to you, isn't that better than any of the reasons why you would oppose it? It's important to understand. I mean, these people were not playing around. Look at verse 3. They actually seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Something about what Peter and John were doing had deeply disturbed them and was a great offense to them, and they perceived it as a very serious threat. What is it? Well, think about it. The majority of the people who are in the temple, the religious rulers and the pastors and theologians, are the ones that are partially responsible for putting Jesus Christ to death in the first place, not that long before this day itself. They had a hand in His crucifixion. So obviously, if more and more people are persuaded that Jesus is alive somehow and is still at work in the lives of people, healing them miraculously, and Jesus is being preached and this church is growing, which it is growing, then they are going to see that these people are the ones who crucified Jesus and it's a threat then to their power. But what does that mean specifically? Specifically it means that they're going to lose money If people follow Christ, they're not going to participate in the sacrificial racket in the temple. If enough people come to Christ, they're going to stop funding the anti-Christ work of those who have rejected Him. There goes also any outward credibility that these men have. No more political prominence. No more fame. Nobody running to the high priest and all of his uh, friends and family to find out from them everything, every detail about their lives and how to run everything in society. See, the preaching of Christ to these men was not only a, a religious threat, but this threat in their pocketbooks. This whole mafia scene that they had established in the temple was being threatened to be overturned if people actually came to Christ. Their money, their power, and their fame. And behind all this too is the simple fact that what the apostles are preaching at its very core contradicts what people believe about themselves. And you know this from the preaching today. It's the same thing. If you tell people that they are sinful and in need of a Savior, even if you're saying, listen, provision has been made for your sin in Christ. And I am no better than you are. I am a guilty sinner too. People get very offended by that idea. I mean, how could somebody get offended at at someone being healed. Well, they get offended because the preaching that accompanies that healing says, yeah, you see that crippled man? That's you, not only physically, but spiritually. And when people hear that they're bad and that they have to give account to God, what is their response? Their response is, well, who are you all of a sudden to tell me that? I'm not any worse than anybody else is. And as the apostles go through the go through the New Testament church and they're preaching the law, preaching the law, preaching the law, you have two responses. People that are cut to the heart and they accept it and they flee to Christ for forgiveness and people who absolutely despise that message and they will not stand for it. You see, this message, though outwardly very pleasing and good and wonderful, and objectively it's pleasing and good and wonderful, is very offensive because it threatens all of their vain money, all of their power, all of their fame, all of their self-reliance, all of their autonomy, all of their glory, all of their visions of themselves being pretty good people. I mean, they of all people are the ones whom God will look at and accept them because of their devotion to the religious faith. And who are these fishermen coming along 
I mean, can't they see that we put their leader to death and we thought that would stamp out this little sect that rose up in society, in Jewish culture and religion? And no, here they come now with all the more vigor and power proclaiming these truths. They know who they're dealing with. They don't tell us that we're sinful. I don't want to be told that I'm wrong about what I think and the way I live my life. Now here's where we have to take a step back and we have to get some perspective on what is going on. Think about this. Verse 14. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, this is when they were brought before the Sanhedrin the next day. They could see, this is the rulers, they could see the man who had been healed standing there with the apostles. There was nothing they could say. You mean to tell me that people who see the miracle right before their eyes are not willing to then listen to the accompanying preaching of those who perform the miracle? Are not willing to learn the lesson that people say that's impossible? How can it be that someone would see that and not accept it and believe it? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. How can this be possible? How can it be possible that they even admit in the course of their deliberation that the miracle happened and everybody else knows that it happens and their only concern is keeping it quiet so that other people don't catch on to this instead of saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe it's actually true and since it's true, I have to believe what the apostles say. How can this be? How about verse 21? After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. In other words... The truth of what had happened is leaving no impression on these men's hearts. The only thing they're worried about is how we can punish them. And they come to the conclusion that they can't punish them because the people will not let them, because the people obviously know that what happened is is good and true. It's amazing. Verses 8 and 9. Rulers and elders of the people, you are calling us to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and you ask how he was healed. This was an account of kindness shown to a cripple. Can't they just accept that and embrace it and glory in it like anybody else in their right mind would? Well, the answer is no. And here you have a very clear example of the fallen human race, don't you? It is not for a lack of evidence. It is not for a lack of information that people reject Christ. People are born into the world rejecting Christ and obstinate against Him. What do people care about? Think about what they were discussing. They said, we can't figure out how to punish them because the people were praising God for what had happened. In other words, if we punish them, then the people aren't going to like us and give us praise. It has nothing to do with what's true or what's not true. People don't care about what. What do they care about? They care about how other people think. They want to please the people. Why do they want people to like them? They want people to like them. They want to please people so that then they can take advantage of them. So that other people can give them what they want. 
so that they can oppress them and take more money from them. That's what these rulers do, and that's what everybody does who's born into the world apart from Christ. This is sinful man, hard-hearted, doesn't care about what's obviously true, but in the face of what's obviously true, suppresses that truth, rejects it, and sins actively against it whenever it comes into their life. Today, people walk around living in the world that God created. The Apostle instructs us that it's true. That leaves them without excuse. When they see the things that have been created, when they think about themselves, when they think about existence, that is all clear evidence that God exists and that they belong to Him and that they owe Him their obedience. Do they believe that? No. In the face of all of the evidence, the, the Scripture's clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. They have enough information to know that God exists and to seek after Him. Do they do it? No. They do the opposite because they're hard-hearted. Why do unbelievers prize their relationships so much? Because they get things out of them. They like to put a fence up around themselves of comfort. You know, we can talk and argue about certain things, but when it comes to those very core things about who I am and whether or not I'm okay, don't challenge that. That's what's happening in this story. They're threatening my money, my power, my fame. I don't want to be told that I'm wrong about anything. Think about that too. We know what that's like. We're not better than anybody else. Think about the last time your money or power or fame or influence or something that you were comfortable with and you liked got threatened. How did you respond? Or think about the last time that you had to be corrected and told that you were wrong about anything. What immediately is our reaction? No. I am self-sufficient. I am fine. Don't tell me how it should be. Leave me alone. What is true and what is good is the last thing that these temple police and these pastors and theologians and the Pharisees along with them and the Sanhedrin, it's the last thing that they care about. This is the nature of unbelief and of opposition to Christ. I will decide what I like, what is right, and what I will do. And no matter what comes in the way, truth, who cares? As long as I can maintain my sin, my lusts, my pride, my materialism. I do think that as we see the opposition of Christ in the book of Acts, in the one sense, it's fair for us to say we are not like that. In another sense, it is good for us to see the character of these temple police and these pastors and theologians, these religious people, and be warned. And be warned that we are not put in this world, once we are called to salvation in Christ, always to be comfortable. When we hear things that may shake us a little bit, that may rattle the cage, that may upset the apple cart, that don't let the sleeping dog lie at times, we always are quick to react strongly in opposition. There are different reasons for that. Sometimes we have to face it. We just want to be comfortable. Sometimes we want just to please other people and we don't want to have conflict. And those are all very selfish reasons and obstacles when they stand in way of the truth. We should not be in love with our lusts and with our pride and our influence and our money so that when we are instructed by the Word of God, from the Word of God on these things, 
that we raise them up as obstacles to our obedience. Uh, But really, this story is about Christ's Gospel advancing in the face of opposition. I mean, realistically, humanly speaking, it's impossible for this message. I don't care how outwardly powerful it was, somebody gets healed, but if you think about what's at stake for the religious and political leaders at the time in allowing this message to advance, it's really impossible for them to let it continue. I mean, sure, they're confounded, at least at this point, how to stamp out the message of the apostles. But keep in mind, it wasn't long ago that they murdered the Lord Jesus Christ, and they can certainly do that again. And they certainly will be organizing the troops to do it again. And in one sense, and you would not expect, you could not expect that this gospel would go forward, especially if the apostles weren't going to take up arms. But the opposition does not matter to the advancement of the glorious gospel of Christ and His kingdom. In the face of all opposition, the Lord sits enthroned on high and mocks the opposition. Verse 4. Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Jesus heals the cripple at the temple. This is the turf of the Jewish religious political mafia. He comes and heals this man at the temple and the gospel is preached and the number of men in the church grows to about 5,000 people. Remember, the church is an organized group. It's countable. It has membership, as we've seen indications of that before, and the church is growing. The the number growing to be about 5,000 at this point. Nobody can stop it. Verse 13 when the leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What did they see about these men? They saw the courage. Now, Peter and John had no courage based on their own training. They were standing up against the lawyers of the day. They were standing up against the professional theologians of the day. These were fishermen. Now, they were not stupid men. They had some training as they were walking around with Jesus for the time since He had called them and they had received specialized instruction over the days immediately prior to Jesus ascending. So they did have training. But what they marveled at was the courage that these men had to stand before the religious and political elites and give true statements that could not be refuted. Arguments from the Scripture, which these men had studied all their lives, that they could not answer. The courage, the power of the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel against all human opposition. Verse 19. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know, basically, Christ got a hold of us and it's going to continue to advance. We can't help it. You can try to do whatever you want to do, but we're not going to follow your command. We're going to follow the command of Christ. Verse 24. When they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer, saying, Sovereign Lord, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You are the one. You are the one, O Lord. Verse 28. They did what Your power and will had decided before should happen. You are the one who actually planned their opposition and are using their opposition to Your ends, just like in the crucifixion of Christ. So when the church is facing opposition in life, 
when the apostles faced opposition, they said, oh, it's just like with Jesus. God has ordained this opposition, which is actually going to be the means by which Christ will advance the kingdom even further. You can't stop the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Verse 29, the same thing. Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here is God acting to empower the church to continue to advance in spite of really the impossibility of it happening, humanly speaking. The kingdom of Christ cannot stop. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Don't be caught being dashed like a potter's urn at the end when you will have said, oh, now I understand that I am sinful and miserable and that I need Christ and the power of His resurrection. That's a, that's a powerful message. That's a powerful message even today when we look around the world and see in some places hostile, violent opposition to the name of Christ, but more so in our own context we just see ignorance and apathy. Nobody knows and nobody cares. And the minute that you preach the law of God and the minute you sound the gospel of God, the radical skepticism comes up in people's minds. Not only that, but even if people are somewhat religious, they don't want to hear about sin and judgment. And so they're not prepared to hear about the gospel of Christ and what He offers sinners. But that gospel can't be stopped, you see. According to the sovereign will and grace of our Lord. And it will not be stopped. It will not be stopped until He returns to glorify all of His people. In the face of any opposition that you face in your life to believing the Gospel and holding fast to that which is true, whether the opposition comes from the outside, people who ridicule you, your family, your friends, or whether it comes from you when you are lazy or unwilling be submissive to the Scripture and to fight your sin. Wherever that opposition comes, you see that the Lord's grace to you will triumph over that and that you may go forward in confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ for His kingdom will advance. He is the glorious one, the anointed of the Father whom we serve. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the sure advancement of Your kingdom and that in the face of all opposition, the kingdom still goes forward. Uh, we spend many of our days worrying about uh, the breakdown of our own culture, the breakdown of many world cultures. Uh, we look at the outward uh, power and glory of man and we uh, think somehow that we are losing but we know that Your Gospel continues to advance. Help us especially, Lord, to not be man-pleasers, not be in love with our own lusts and material things, not be quick to compromise, us not to make excuses. Help us to embrace that which is true and good. Help us to remain humble and contrite and fleeing to Christ. Help us to continue to worship Him in spirit and truth. 
uh, that you would be praised. Thank you for the promise that as we have come to him and have cast ourselves upon him that we will never be lost and never be found named as these uh, men of opposition uh, who will be judged in the end. Uh, Strengthen us for thankful obedience, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Four twenty six. Four twenty six is our song. Jesus, with your church, abide. Stay close uh, to us, Lord.